You've got a greater pursuit. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on what he's accomplished. Set your eyes on his beauty. Set your eyes on his greatness. Set your eyes on what he has accomplished and what he can do. And when you set your heart and your mind and your eyes on that, you'll find power to overcome. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Lawrence. Crawford is leading us through a multi-part series called Navigating Life's Challenges, looking at the book of 1 Peter. It's a sobering yet insightful study about how God's people can thrive even under persecution. The Christians to whom Peter was writing were undergoing tremendous hostility under the reign of Roman Emperor Nero. Peter encouraged those believers to represent the love of Christ before the persecutors, to seek the power of God to sustain them. Well, hope you can join us for our study today. Our speaker has served in Christian leadership for over 50 years. His books include Leadership as an Identity, Unshaken, and his latest co-authored by his wife Karen called Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow. If you missed out on this series, get caught up on our website where you can listen to or download each message. More on that at the end of our broadcast today. We're headed to 1 Peter chapter 4. Here's Crawford Loritz on Living a Legacy. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and I've entitled the message, Marked by Grace. Marked by Grace. I got an incredible uh, card this past week. It was hilarious. In fact, every time I think about it, I just crack up. It is the funniest card I've ever gotten in my life, and I've gotten some funny ones. On the front of the card is this cat, okay? The cat if I can describe it, visualize this, its hind left leg is over its head like this. And the cat is in excruciating pain. You can see it on its face. And you open the card, and the card reads this. I do yoga, I chant, and I meditate, but I still want to slap somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we're like that, aren't we? We've done everything. We've tried, we've worked, we've outlined, we've gone to the seminars, we've gone to the conferences, we've read the books, we've read the blogs, we've read the articles, we've small grouped it, we've interacted with one another, we've tried our best, but there's still something missing. It just does not seem to be good enough. We live in a culture and a society that is just, just saturated with performance. Do this and do better at this. How are you doing over this, over, the, over, over this year compared to last year? How are you doing with regard to the competition? How are you doing with regard to people that you're working with? What do your numbers look like? How are you doing? What are your kids doing? Are your kids smart? Are they in school yet? Are they taking this language yet? Are they doing this yet? How about this? How about that? How come you're not getting better at this? So our worth is always on the line. Our value is always on the line. It's a little meritocracy. The more you do, the better you look. I think our culture is conflicted. Now, I really go on someplace with this. I think our culture is conflicted. What do you mean by that? I think on one hand, there's this meritocracy, but on the other hand, we live in a culture that is screaming and dying for 
unconditional love. And we see that by, 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 by these expressions. Now, sometimes it's negative, but we see it by these expressions. Don't judge me. Embrace my truth. I am who I am, and you need to affirm that. Now, well, there's a negative side to that. Yeah, truth, uh, the negative side of that is that we've lost vision of objective truth, and we've wandered away from that, and we're celebrating hyper-individualism. But don't miss the hunger in all of that, too. The hunger in that is that I, I was born to be loved and to be affirmed and to be valued and to be accepted, and why do I have to keep on performing? We carry that mindset into our Christianity. Do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. Have you ever offended someone and really hurt them? But instead of retaliating, not only did they forgive you, but they shower you with love and kindness? How does it make you feel? It draws you toward them. It draws you toward them. I'm struggling here today, and I promise you I'm going to get to the text here. Grace does the same thing to us. But part of my struggle is that, that um, sometimes when we discover the concept of grace, we only discover half of what it implies and means. Let me explain. We, when we discover grace, that it's not based upon performance, that I can't make God love me anymore, that his grace and mercy, they're unconditional. We revel in that, but we, we kind of sort of assume that, that then therefore how I live and what I do doesn't really matter. So grace can be defined as he accepts me and he loves me and pours out his love on me just because he loves me, and that's true, but that does not imply at all that, there's, that I need to respond to that grace. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, let me back up and just define grace if I can. I mean, it's, defining grace is very difficult. It's almost like trying to define holiness. Uh, defining grace is extraordinary. But Crawford's feeble definition is this. The grace really, and although we distinguish, sometimes in order to, we just want to distinguish mercy from grace, but mercy is a part of grace. Um, grace is the mercy and love lavished on us by God, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because God loves us and wants to shower us with his goodness. Now, what this grace should produce in us is gratitude. Gratitude, which in turn, here you have it, this is the second part of grace, which in turn creates a desire to love and please God. So it's not, not just that I revel in his unconditional love for me, that is true. But what does that unconditional love do in me? What does his mercy and grace do in me? It creates in me a desire to love him and to serve him and to worship him 
not solely because I have to, but because of my gratitude for what he's done. Now, I, I promise you I'm gonna get back to the text, but is that not what Paul says in Titus chapter two, verse, uh, verse 11? Notice what he says, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice this interesting line. Training us, grace has appeared. Training us, grace has appeared. Training us. What does it train us to do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What? Yeah. That's what grace does. See, grace tutors us in holiness. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he, he is given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He's speaking to the, to the crowd there, and there's some Pharisees in, in the crowd and religious leaders in the crowd. Boy, Jesus gets kind of hard on the religious leaders. Notice the line. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. That you have to have, now this, this sounds crazy. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. You go, what in the world is he talking about? The scribes had, had over 600 and some odd laws. They had laws to protect the laws. And so there, there was this performance thing, and Jesus always busted them on their performance and thinking, you know, and they were disingenuous. Ain't no way in the world they could keep even a fraction of the laws that they were talking about. And yet he says to the crowd that you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But if you poke around in chapter 5 and over in chapter 6 of, of Matthew, you begin to understand what he's talking about. He's talking about a motivation that surrenders to the power and the presence of God in your life that gives you the ability to keep and to do what God requires. It's a response to grace. Response to grace. Peter is writing these exiles. These folks have been scattered out through the five provinces of the Roman Empire. And these people are hurting, if you've been around here before, part of the series that we talked about. They, they're hurting, man. They're under great persecution. They have been extracted from Jerusalem and other places, and they are fairly nomadic. And they find themselves in foreign context here. And Peter's words here in this section, what Peter is appealing for them to do and to become, he's appealing to these exiles to immerse themselves in God's amazing grace. Now you notice that in these two brief paragraphs, verses one through 11, the word grace itself is only mentioned one time. And in fact, when it's mentioned, it's, not, it's, it's talking about spiritual gifts, grace gifts down in verse 10. So you might say the word itself is not described or, or mentioned right here in these two paragraphs. But I would argue, I would argue, although the word is not explicitly used, Grace is the dominant theme of these two paragraphs. Peter is talking about two aspects, amazing aspects of the grace of God. He's talking about, number one, in verses one through six, the power of God's grace. And then verses seven through 11, what this grace should do, or the motivation of God's grace. The power of his grace and the motivation of his grace. What grace has done in me 
the power, and what grace should do through me, the motivation. And this is true in all of our hearts and lives. What is grace? What has it done in us? And what does it do through us? First, there's a power of God's grace in verses one through six. The very first thing that Peter says is that this grace breaks sin's control. Now I want you to notice, look at, look at these words very closely in verse one. Peter writes, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I'm gonna explain that little cease from sin in a second here. But I, I want you, if you pay close attention here, what, what, Peter, what Peter is talking about is that being identified with Christ is, demonstrates a life that breaks with sin. He's actually, although he doesn't say it, he's talking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The suffering is more specific here. Jesus suffered, he, he died on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin, he broke the power of our sin on the cross. But Peter reminds him, okay, okay, as we've seen already through this study, arm yourself and don't be surprised when you have to suffer. Particularly when you have to suffer because of your identification with the glorious accomplishment that Jesus executed and did on the cross. Think the same way. I know that this is redundant if you've been here, but, but suffering to the believer is a privilege. It's not only something that, we, that, that will happen to us, it is a privilege when we suffer righteously. Suffering is identification with Jesus. It's identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. And I think Peter's being specific. You all are being persecuted because you're identifying with Christ. But this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Because you know what his death accomplished. His death accomplished on the cross, number one, he took care of the penalty of sin. That price will never have to be paid. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you you will never be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished, all of the sins, past, present, and future, had been paid for on the cross. There's nothing more for you to do. There's nothing more for me to do. It is finished. It is over. You can try to pay for them. You can think that you're bargaining with God. You can promise all you want to, but there's nothing more you can do. It is finished. It has been paid for. Now, 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 there's a second part, though, that is implied here in the text. In fact, it's not only implied, it's stated specifically. And that is that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. And that's the whole idea when he says, uh, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased, ceased from sin. Now, the word ceased there, that translation is a little problematic because it would tend to imply some sinless perfection. 
And I just have to be honest with you, there, there are some squirrely views of sanctification. Now you know my opinion about those views. Uh, there are some squirrely views about sanctification throughout the history of the church. It keeps raising its head. And all of it kiss up to this whole idea of sinless perfection. That somehow or another, when you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've died with him, and that is true. Uh, and that so you no longer have the propensity or the ability to sin. And a number of people will base that on Romans 6, but the problem with just basing theology on Romans 6 is because Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 is a whole. And before you make any conclusions about what Paul is saying, you've got to read on because he gives clarification. And so you conclude that. Well, that, that's, not what, that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter's not saying that we no longer have the ability to sin. And everybody who says that, and I, I hear that, I say, yeah, I, I won't, you know... Number one, you need to hang around me. You will see, uh, I, I, you know, I ain't always there. And I introduce you to a lot of folks in our church that I know ain't there either. He's not talking about ceasing. A, a better, perhaps a better translation of the word rather than cease is the word released. It's the word released. Uh, the idea here, read it again. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has been released from sin. The sin that he's talking about here is the power of sin has been broken. That we're no longer slaves of sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. We're no longer slaves to sin. That we don't have to give in to sin. That its power has been broken. Now, he's not talking about perfection, but neither is he talking about some of the stuff that I hear all the time. You know, we kind of dumb it down. Oh, I, you know, I just struggle. This is my struggle. I'm, I, I just struggle with this, and I, I, I guess I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life, and if this is something that I keep doing, and, you know, and I, he, he helps me more, but I claim First John 1, 9, and I overcome it for a little bit, and I, I keep struggling. Now, to be sure, there's, there's ongoing struggles. There are thorns in our flesh. I get that. There's temptations as long as we live, but I, I think sometimes, sometimes we accommodate what should not be accommodated, that we've been set free. Anybody here ever hear of Juneteenth? Yeah. Juneteenth. You know what Juneteenth is? In uh, in May the 10th, 1865, officially the Civil War was over and the slaves were released. A little bit of a problem, though. Uh, The news didn't get to Texas until June 19th, the next month, the 19th. And so these slaves, they didn't realize that they were free. Some of us don't realize that we're free. That we're free. That the power of sin has been broken in our lives. And that's what grace does. It's just just not grace that leads you to Calvary, to the cross, not by works, lest any man should boast, but we're saved by grace through faith. It's not just that that leads you to Calvary. It is that grace that we live by today. We stand in that grace. He has broken, grace has broken the power of sin. Secondly, this grace sustains a new life. Peter goes fast forward here in verses 2 through 6, and he applies how this identification with Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and the power of sin that has been broken, and now he says, you know, that shows up every day in your life. Verse 2 says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
You see what Peter's saying here is that, no, 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 you've been benchmarked and marked by grace. This grace, this grace has, has accomplished your salvation, broken the power of sin, and so now you're going to have the mindset that shifts from the passions that we want to pursue in the flesh to pursuing the living, loving God and his will for our lives. Now, let me see if I can say that better. Um, I've come to the conclusion that most people, if not all folks, will never overcome sin by focusing on overcoming sin. You just won't do it. I gotta stop doing this, I gotta stop doing that, I need to stop doing this, I need to resist this. But it's true, we do need to resist sin and we do need to fight the fight. But the way to overcome sin is focusing on the one who's greater than my sin. The way to overcome these issues in my life is to not try to gut it out and think that I can bootstrap it and do it by myself. No, you just get more frustrated. I just get more frustrated. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter seven. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The things that I know that I should do, I, I don't do the things that I know that I should. I've been trying to bootstrap this thing. But the deliverance comes when we focus on the power that's outside of ourselves. And what Peter is saying is that you've got a greater passion. You've got a greater pursuit. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your eyes on what he's accomplished. Set your eyes on his beauty. Set your eyes on his greatness. Set your eyes on what he has accomplished and what he can do. And when you set your heart and your mind and your eyes on that, you'll find power to overcome. Verse 3, he's reminding us that, hey, be careful about wanting to revisit the past for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, he's sort of reminding them, hey, hey, don't romanticize your past misery. Uh, don't, don't, don't look back and celebrate the pleasure of your sin while forgetting the pain of your sin. You, you're going to be tempted to do that. You need to remember that grace is free to you, but it was expensive to God. The gift is free to you, but it cost God everything he had. Uh, don't, don't go back and, and cultivate and coddle the pleasure and forget the bondage that you were in. Dr. Crawford Loritz here on Living a Legacy. And that was the first half of his message, Marked by Grace, the second half next week. Crawford is leading us through the series, Navigating Life's Challenges, based on the book of 1 Peter. Now, Peter wrote this letter to believers living in a time of serious persecution, and it would be good for us to know how God provides when these times come. If you've recently joined our series, you don't have to feel left out. All previous messages can be heard on our website, livingalegacy.org. Look for the Past Programs link. And here's something you may want to check out. You can download all messages in this series for free. Look for the MP3 link on our website. That will take you to Moody Audio, where you can transfer the messages to your computer or MP3 player. Start with livingalegacy.org. 
If you're finding this series helpful, take just a few moments to let us know. Your feedback and financial support help ensure that we'll be here week after week. Look for the contact link at livingalegacy.org. Thanks for being with us today. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.